0: magic might have been inside of us all along are you serious yeah i told you michelle i love you i'll do anything for
1: you hello welcome to the social yet distance podcast it's me jack it's a beautiful day here at the beach today we're going to be with wesley Hine. he's the author of 12 chicago cabbies the trail of Quetzalcoatl, and has a new work uh, in process as well. Poetry and Pose has been published in the Chicago Reader, Gravitas, Heroin Love Songs, Beat Dump, The Wellington St- Street Review, and many, many others. His work is known for examining love, death, madness, street life, classism, and the subculture, using a macabre style that's compassionate. He grew up in Wisconsin, was lost and found in Chicago and now resides with his wife in LA. His catchphrase is you'll hear many times today let in the light, let out the fire. Wesley Heine, yeah, I'm ready. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack Farnell, and we are so glad to be here this afternoon. It's Sunday afternoon, and it's a beautiful day outside. I hope you're having a great day. We are going to do a wonderful afternoon with Wesley Heine. And Wes will correct me if I said it wrong, because I say everything wrong. So um, we'd like to welcome him, and we'll spend the next little bit of time talking about his uh, upcoming books, um, his published works, and plans for the future, and what brings him to the wonderful world of writing. Thanks for being here, and we appreciate you coming and hanging with us.
0: Wes, how are you doing, buddy? I'm excellent, Jack. Nice to finally speak with you.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It has been quite a journey trying to get this together, and I appreciate your patience and us putting it all together. Um, Tell, um, you know, I know you a little bit. And um, I'm not as close to you as I am with some of the other folks that I've been pl- blessed. And but reading your work and the interactions we've had up to this point, I know that's something I'd love to change and see a lot more of you and and uh, and what you're bringing to us. So tell us a little bit about you and how you come to the world of writing and and what's going on in that in that department. And then we'll hear a little bit of poetry and some prose.
0: Sure, sure. Well, um, um. Like a lot of people, I got into writing through music, and uh, and I was a heavy metal kid, liked a lot of 60s music and singer-songwriters and stuff like that. And like I was saying, I think I went through basically like four distinct phases, you know, my heavy metal phase, and then with the art school, got into surrealism and psychedelia, and that affected my writing. And uh, then I went through a significant blues phase of trying to do straight talk, you know, like good uh, Mississippi or Chicago blues does, you know, which is very poetic in itself and uh, did a lot of open mics and poetry and reclusive writing and uh, had a blues band called Cousin Bones where we try to mix all these things together and, uh, you know, mix performance and poetry and music together and I uh, was a street performer and squatter and wrote songs for people on the street and took all these different influences together. And by my late 20s, I felt that as a writer, my voice had developed enough to take uh, publishing seriously. And, um, you know, I've worked hard to get a lot of short stories and um, poetry out there. And I... uh, My first uh, book of poems was called The Trail of Quetzalcoatl, which is definitely in the avant-garde surrealistic psychedelic vein of um, uh, inspired by Mayan prophecies and my uh, extended trip into Mexico and um, psychedelic uh, visions. And that came out in 2016. And this new project, called 12 Chicago Cabbies is more in the vein of stark realism. I was a dispatcher for many years, especially during the recession era and uh, got to know drivers from all over the world and different backgrounds and my own working class issues and theirs. And I'm really excited that this book through Newington Blue Press has come this month and it's available for pre-order now. And it's just gotten a real positive response. A lot of people have already ordered and it's a collection of short stories and poems, you know, dealing with all kinds of issues and just the wild city that Chicago is. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny, it's sad. And I hope next year to have a collection of my poems published and unpublished out as well. And, um, Yeah, that's me. (laughs) So
1: I'm not hearing a whole lot about like creative writing education or school or coming at at, um, transcribing your world into words through an an academic path. Is that accurate or was, you know, seeking an education of sorts um, kind of part of that whole process for you,
0: do you think? Um, I think I'm so independently minded that it was never a priority. I think, like a lot of people, I was almost turned off by English in in high school, you know, that the books that I was into, like Hunter S. Thompson or The Beats and stuff like that, they didn't teach that stuff that's relevant to anyone who grew up in the 20th century. They teach Pastoral, uh, you know, books about you know a Southern Belle and this and that and anything that had any reflection on you know working class people like my dad or uh, you know people that I know you know wasn't wasn't taught and the I think a lot of people don't get into reading and writing because they just didn't find the right book. You know, there's something for everybody. And I was lucky that I found the the right books that really turned me on to uh, writing being, in my opinion, the most powerful art form that it, if you get into a writer, they will stick with you more than most other art forms, you know, more than, um, you know, they get under your skin. They become like, a, of a friend that you never met but they're in your consciousness you're literally reading somebody's thoughts you know that's transcribed over time and i was lucky in college i went to art school because you know i wanted to i'm really into this multimedia thing or at least i was of you know i was writing songs i was in a metal band i was Doing pictures, the pictures were starting to have like words floating around in them, and I was writing in high school. I had my own like little newsletter that made the school crazy, and <laughs> and I put out a lot more than the official uh, newspaper. But anyway, the combination of all that was like I'm going to go to art school, uh, get out of town because I was getting in too much trouble in my personal life, and go to the city where they had real crime to deal with and I could be myself. And I did land in a for-profit art school that's very predatory. And, but, you know, I didn't Bad worry baby. about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't worry about it because, you know, I am of the opinion that no one's gonna teach you how to be an artist. You can get pushed in the right way, but you're gonna figure it out. And if you're expressing yourself and the world around you, you know, academia is great and everything. And but I did have an English professor named James Burke who really did encourage me and really did read my first novel, which was trash. <laughs> and, and he did, you know. But
1: I think that that's the key. Is like in yeah. stories like this, and in my own experience, it's not the it's not the education. It's the people that that bothered to teach in a voice that you could hear, and and you know. As an adult, I can look back and see that, you know, uh, Virginia Burke, as crazy as she was, was very much um, had a method in her madness. And the way that she taught me was completely different than the way she taught the kids sitting in the chair next to me. And, And that was her expertise. She knew that allowing me to go. To the parking lot and move her 1971 Corvette to a different parking space after school one day would make me listen to anything in the world she had to say. She was <laughs> right, and you know, all it all it was was one risky little move that she hoped that you know one little secret that me and her kept from the principal, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and it yeah. made a difference in my world and and. You know, I think about um, the bookshelves in my house, Gore Vidal, you know, lots of Bukowski. My dad read Bukowski a lot. Um, I think he preferred the stories uh, as a, over the poetry only because he was, you know, he-man enough that he didn't cater to that poetry, you know, stuff. Um, it was, you know, Rat Pack, Big Band, um, you know, but, you know, this whole idea of, of not only is there depth and meaning in poetry, but it's it's an open door to entertainment as well and always has been, is always been intriguing. You know, people like Rich Ferguson, Rich just blows me away, you know. Um, there's another <laughs> young man, um, Austin Davis in Arizona, and he's doing a, a, he's just put out an album, you know. That's one of my goals. I wanted to do a music slash spoken word album and do it on vinyl, you know, um, just like they used to do, you know, John yeah. Giorno and, and people like that. Uh, so, yeah, it's exciting stuff, man. And, and I, you know, I love to hear that progression because my partner, Fran, she's in the UK, right? And she's gone through these very defined academic channels you know, that it, it's a, that's another whole story with her, but, because um, she's, uh, uh, you know, a squatter, an Irish squatter punk who lived in, you know, in, in London, um, and is a genius, so, you know, you put all those things together, it's, it's an amazing uh, combo, but, yeah. um, you know, so it's from the street, it's, it's, from the individuals, not necessarily the pre prescribed, um, knowledge base that's required. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to hear that tale. Cause I would have guessed that about you as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't find that kind of encouragement in academics until college. And it was, like I said, my professor James Berg, who ended up speaking at my wedding a couple of years ago, and, um, you know, he's still a good friend to this day that, took the chance to read my early crap and would, you know, encourage me, you know, and make corrections. And despite the content, because that's all I heard in high school was like, Oh, this is too dark and that's disturbing. That's not appropriate. You know? Um, and finally, you know, in college, she was encouraging and, you know, I'm not, I'm not devoid of influences. You know, he was encouraging. Um, I, uh, Around the same time, I I live near the Green Mill in Chicago that has the original Poetry Slam. Mm -hmm. And I started going there on Sundays. So Mark Smith, who's, you know, credited as being the founder of Slam Poetry, I learned a lot from him. I interviewed him at length, made a little documentary about him and the whole scene. And even though I never really like adapted that style of performing, you know, the whole discipline of it and, you know, trial by fire of reading your stuff in public and Mm -hmm. which creates an automatic editing process for yourself. Like, well, now I know what works and what doesn't. And also just makes you, when I would start performing my stuff, um, in the mid two thousands, it does thicken your skin and it does make you infinitely brave to be like, here I am take it or leave it. You know? Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I've, I, the whole slam poetry thing kind of went over my head, too. But there are people that that came out of that, like Guante blows me away every time I hear something new from him. Um, Teresa Davis, I'm from Atlanta, Teresa Davis and a lot of the people, um, you know, within those poetry circles in the more inner city um, than, you know, <laughs> white bread suburbs where i live but the um you know that whole crew um from uh java speaks um they're i mean they're all world class um so i've been exposed to it but uh, it's just never been my thing i don't I, I don't know i i laugh and say i don't have that that much rhythm
0: <laughs> yeah but you know there's all the kinds of different kinds of performers and there's some performers that are just really phenomenal that you know, mix, you know, rap and music and uh, all these different influences to make a cool performance. Um, I would find, like, I've done all kinds of open mics. I started, like, me and my friend Sid Yiddish, who's this, like, kind of punk poet. We would do our own thing where we would do open mics and our own shows and mix music and poetry and do little tours. And um, so, yeah, there's so many different ways of, of performing. And I've really experimented with the crossover between the different mediums and performance and the page. And, you know, I found there's only so many performers that are good writers and good performers at the same time. There's a lot of performers that are, they can make reading the phone book sound interesting because they're so right. electric. And a lot of good writers aren't the best performers. And uh, and it's interesting, you know, a lot of things that I write I feel are good on the page when you're you know having that voice in your head when you're having a quiet moment where you can go back and reread the lines and consider the subtext and all that and but my 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 um, phase of trying to bypass publication and go to the open mics and read on the street corner and all that stuff really did strengthen me as a writer you know for the page as well, I you mean, know, it all feeds into each other.
1: Yeah, um, I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't. Um, and, and I, you know, I have no doubt that, I, you know, I'm not very good at reading and or performing, um, but what I do find with a, a lot of more rhythmic, more um, stage-based poetry is a lot of times the dra- drama will cover kind of mediocre c- content. Um, and like you said, I mean, it's, you know, some people can read a phone book and sometimes I find myself thinking that's exactly what they're doing, but they're doing it really well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, there are people who can read a phone book and make, bring you to tears doing it, you know, um, Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd love to be able to, to be one of those people. What I often find, though, is intriguing is when, like, a lot of times I'll say, hey, um, Mr. Poet, who was just on the podcast, I might read this poem out of your book out loud and use it for uh, transition between segments, and they would say, fine. And then you find out later on that, you know, they hear the poem completely different than the way they wrote it, you know. Yeah. Or, you know, and so I that's the interesting thing to me also is the response that people have when they hear someone else read their words. And I've, I've adapted. I read my own work in the voice of somebody else, you know, so that I can kind of look out, stand outside and look at it. And that's because I, I don't... <laughs> I hoard it all. I don't publish it. <laughs>
0: you know? It might be a good exercise, though, to, to like see it from different angles.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and mine started off as very long, dramatic, like, um, you know, free-flowing speech, just kind of, um, oh, I don't know how to describe it. But, you know, over years and years and years, this stuff's been sitting in notebooks, and I'll go back and I'll change this and add that and rearrange and do this and do that. And, you know... I, I have probably three or 400 pieces that most people have never seen that I just don't think they're ready yet.
0: (laughs) That's good to have that kind of discipline and patience, though. Yeah.
1: Well, and not only that, but I think to some degree, I'm tired of the stories that are that, you know, I know where they came from. And I'm kind of tired of rethinking I'm to a point where I feel like it's time to let them go because I'm tired of thinking about the stories, you know, and a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, that's that is probably, a rule. Yeah. It's a, it's a war zone and I'm, you know, I need to leave that,
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, that's like the classic um, a conundrum or paradox that I have as a writer is that, yeah, you have nothing but the past to draw from, But as a as a person, I need to move on, you know, like sometimes spiritually, I need to like leave this in the past and move on. I mean, memories fade for a reason. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, especially if you're dealing with autobiographical material as inspiration, like, yeah, you have to go back to your most dramatic, darkest days sometimes and find the humor Sometimes it takes me five, 10 years to find the humor in something that was awful, you know? And well, it- and,
1: it, and it's a, it's a, to me, it's a cementing of whatever the lessons were, too. I mean, it's like coming out the other side and saying, okay, this is what happened. And I can reshape it, reword it, and paint it a different color. But what really happened, happened. And here's the lesson that I got out of it. And I think that what happens in my little weird psyche is that there's a level of acceptance with that lesson and that lets me know it's time to be done with it. You know? Yeah. It's not always yeah. true, but you know, it, it keeps me from arguing with myself about stupid things like writer's block, you know? Yeah. I mean that, yeah, I'm just blocked. I can't. Oh, but you can go to the beach. You can go to the fucking mall. You know, you can pay those bills yeah. you don't want to pay, you know? What's so hard about creative. doing what you say you love, you
0: know? <laughs> my, my problem is more writer's cramp. I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, that's the therapeutic aspect of art that I really believe in. I mean, it can be cathartic for you and also for the audience, and it's really important, and that's why we need to feel free to express ourselves, you know? Well, and even
1: my own experience, I I just believe in the power of the words. I think, you know, I mentioned my dad's bookshelf and, you know, those things were important in those days. But what was really important was, you know, when my life took a turn at around, I don't know, age 12. And I'm sitting in that youthful detention center is what they called it, which is basically jail, prison. And all they have is Herman Hesk and Dostoevsky-esque type books on the library cart that they bring you every every so often. You start reading things that are a little bit over and above, um, you know, Papillon, for example, or the Gulag Archipelago, you know, something that required me to actually think and interpret and look at and investigate. And so I learned a lot more from reading on my own than any prescribed theory. And that's, you know, that's where the reward was, is investigating and looking up those hard words and understanding a little bit about Russian literature and what is, you know, what does this tone mean? And, okay, you know, Gregor is what now? You know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and trying to piece those things together and learning how to think about words <laughs> and how powerful they really are is what made a difference, I think, for me than having Bukowski on the shelf when I was growing up, you know?
0: Yeah. And, like, just the act of reading stimulates different parts of your brain. I was really into this writer called Leonard Schlein who wrote this great book called Art and cool, Physics. Man. Yeah, yeah, he's great. What's and his daughter's and,
1: name? Um, she's the one I like.
0: Yeah. Tiffany Schlein. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. She's yeah. A- yeah. yeah. I know and the Swain
1: family.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um yeah, I talked to him once on the phone. He's he was a nice guy. Um, but just the idea that different um mediums affect your your psyche and your how your brain develops differently is interesting. Just the act of of reading and imagining for yourself the pictures behind the words mm-hmm. is really enlightening and like we are kind of talking about before about how performance is an audio experience, you experience it with your ears and your eyes, you know? And while something on the page, I, I think in images almost where I'm like, I'm drawing you a picture and you gotta right. use your own imagination to to meet me in the middle and imagine something together. Right, and that, That's really powerful. And yeah, I love Leonard Schlein. I, I quoted him in my most recent, um, article in Beat Them about William Burroughs, about the creative process and the, um, how different mediums affect us as, as human beings.
1: <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. Um, I can't remember why I got so turned on by her. I think I originally started seeing her on The Young Turks or somewhere, political, and um and subscribe to her newsletter and stuff and and then of course she was always talking about her dad and i was you know i would go and read stuff from him as well um yeah i I dig people like that that just blow me away with how smart they are
0: (laughs) yeah he was a brain surgeon yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah. i was talking about my friend fran in 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 the uk and i i I kid you not when i sit down to read her work i i sit down with a dictionary because you know and (laughs) and Google ready to like, um, look at historical, like centuries old Irish historical references that everybody knows.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah it, that's, it's good now. You I like can that
1: though, I like reading like that and see most people don't. You know, that's the performance thing you're talking about. It's like, they're giving us the visual and I can appreciate it and I can understand it maybe. Um, and I can interpret it however I want, but what what happens up here when I don't have that stimulation is what needs to actually get exercised all the time. And I think it's more vibrant and um, vivid. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, enough to think in video or in pictures like
0: that, you know? Not everybody can do that. Yeah. And I think... I've always dabbled with that multimedia aspect of like you know this poem will be a different experience on a record. I've done a little spoken word records too, and I've put it in a song. And how you process information is different every time. And on a page or in a painting, even you know it's you know in psychedelic terms, like there's an effect called synesia, mm-hmm. where you know you hear colors and you feel sounds. And despite the intoxication ideas which are less inter- interesting to me those ideas creatively are much more interesting of like you know where does the eye and the ear start and stop you know and mm-hmm. and I've tried to do mixed media a lot you know of doing like home videos and um in my trail of book it's the the project's a movie it's a it's a it's an audio record it's a book and in the book there's all these like collaged photos and words all kind of flowing together. So the line between image and word and is all kind of jumbled. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, and even though I think that cross pollination is really powerful and can make you come up with new ideas, there's also limits to it. I mean, there's also like, I've also learned why mediums are separate in themselves. Like, the classic example is with like cinema like don't use too much voiceover pure cinema has subtext you show what you're what you're trying to say don't you know don't uh, over explain you know or yeah again in a book like leave some subtext you know you know you show people what is happening in the book you don't have to over explain everything you know?
1: Yeah, I agree 100. percent I, I think that's kind of one of my things too. Is um, I have a tendency, like I don't I don't deal with metaphor very well. I just will tell you, you know, um, and 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 it's it's a flaw in my writing. I'm very well aware of that. Um, there are people who do it extremely well, and and I wouldn't you know want to see it any other way. Um, but you know, Rob Plath and Jack Henry and, and, you know, people like that kind of come to mind as you know, they're kind of blunt and right in your face. Um, but they always leave something to, to wonder about. And that's a skill that I don't have. I don't, my goal has always been for the last line to punch you right in the face you
0: know? yeah.
1: and, and you know, and that's, and that's always kind of the goal is yeah. I want to leave you, you know, where you walk away going, damn, you know. Yeah. And with that level of <laughs> expectation, I get let down a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there's something to be said, though, too, of like relying on metaphor too much. And sometimes you just like, just say what you mean, you know. And right. There's really something to be said about straight talk. And that's what I've been into a lot more since art school is, you know, ha- having lived, on the street during the recession, and having to make my own, you know, living in my car, driving out to California, you know, and you know, just sometimes straight talk is just so much more refreshing. And you know, there's always another layer, even if it seems like this is, you know, just the straight dope. There is always another la- layer of subtext, you know, um, and. Studying blues songs has really taught me that. It, it seems on the surp- surface that this is simple language, but there's always some innuendo. There's always something that you're hinting at that's behind the scenes, you know? And um, I don't know, like the- Well, and that I, I-,
1: I think that's, you know, that's reflective of the way we communicate. There's always a subtext, you know? There's always a secondary motive that I'm aware of that you may not know. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean it's some nefarious motive it just means that we don't you can't expect that everybody involved has all of the pieces of information they need to go forward and and if you're going to assume things about what I've written and I've given you that I have to let you do it you know I mean if you know The resolution and the conflict is in my mind and then whatever it's like, you know, I try to live by the principle of, you know, if I give something, it's a gift and it's really none of my business what you do with it. You know, people say things like, oh, you don't want to give that bum a dollar because he's going to go buy a beer with it. Well, guess what? It might be the very last beer he ever buys and he quits drinking forever and he goes and saves lives of people who are dying from drinking. Because I gave yeah. him that dollar, you know it's none of my business what he's doing. Yeah, gonna you do just with gotta
0: that. let it go sometimes. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, I need to learn to do that with my words as well, and and a lot of other things, I'm sure. But <laughs> that's all I'm claiming right now. So yeah. why don't you read us some stuff, brother? I, I've, um, you know, we can talk philosophy all day long, and neither one of us yeah. have a clue what the hell we're talking about. But <laughs> words, they got the deal. Sure. So um, pick, pick what you're comfortable with, man. I've got a list, too, if you're interested.
0: Um, yeah, I think you and I have s- some shared experiences. I write a lot about um, homelessness and addiction and classism. Um, so, yeah, any requests, I'd be glad. To... Um, Duster hit me pretty hard. Um, I like Rain
1: Dance, too, a lot. Um, Let me ask you to a little bit before I I noticed in the book, there's uh, a defined three sections of the book. Why? Why is there a reason why that is? Is it just to break up for continuity or is there some logic behind that?
0: Well, um, yeah, I think as a storyteller, me and my wife edited it together that way. All the poems in uh, Street Corner Spirits. So there is a narrative underlying all the poems. They can't stand on their own and be like a little slice of life. But in order, uh, they do start with Wisconsin, where I grew up, and the kind of different, uh, you know, uh, gremlins in the woodwork in a small town kind of issues. And then the second part is kind of various adventures and coming into myself, living in Chicago and other cities. And then primarily the last section is, you know, dealing with more mortality and, um, you know, finally approaching middle age and living in Los Angeles here and really more the mature (laughs) perspective in those, that last section, I would say is the,
1: yeah, I, I, I mean, that's kind of the way I read it. I just wanted to to see if I was on track with that, and and it's a theme that I actually repeat as well. I'm, I'm, I, I actually do have a project that I'm working on, and it's basically three chapbooks, and each one has three sections, and all three sections and all three books are kind of in order of appearance, you know, in, in my world. Um, but they cover different stages like youth, you know, teen years and
0: God knows, God help me old age. <laughs> yeah. And then helps the reader, you know, they can go along with the ride within they then they know, you know, what baggage you're referring to later. <laughs> yeah. Good,
1: bad, ugly, or <laughs> indifferent is how I've referred to them.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I would um, be glad to do Rain Dance and, or I I definitely want to do something from my cabbies book at some point.
1: Yeah, it's all up to you, man. Completely up to you. I just don't, you know, I I tend to ramble and leave out the art part.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, yeah, um, what I admired about, you know, what work I've seen and heard from, from you is, I really like the one where you were having this intense dialogue with um, a woman who was suffering from um, bipolar, I believe. And uh, yeah, that's something else we share. My mom has, you know, dealt with that and uh, her whole life. And it's, uh, it's, it's real, man. And, uh, you know, I love her all the more for it because she goes higher than anybody else and she goes lower than anybody else. And it is a wild ride, you know?
1: Well, I I appreciate, and and I hope that there's some message in that particular document. Um, You know, Gay Harper was a a dear, dear friend um, in many, many aspects. And she was very encouraging of my writing and you know, included me in hers and, you know, we, I say we, but she mainly, um, endured a bit of a struggle for quite some time. Um, everybody in her world had given up and I understand what that feels like. And I wanted to be the one that did not give up for her. And, I'm, you know, as sad as it is, I'm I'm glad that I accomplished that goal. I'm very sad that it wasn't enough. Um, the outcome is as it would have been for uh, any number of unmedicated, untreated, unwatched, unloved, uncared about, unrealized potential um, spirit who. Who, lit, who wandered this planet um, and found very few who gave a shit. And, you know, I gave a shit. It wasn't enough. I mean, her demons were her demons. But um, that particular piece is all true. Word for word, taken from text over a, 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 probably a six or eight month period of time when things got really rough, and, you know, my only regret is I missed the text that might have made the difference, um, and it's, <laughs> interestingly enough, because I had been awake talking to her on the phone for two or three days before that, and I fell asleep, <laughs> so, Dude. you know, I wrestle with that, and it's sad, um, but it, the outcome's no different than it would have been, uh, you know, I didn't have control over that. And I did what I set out to do. I loved her and I never gave up on her. I always believed in her. And I know what a difference I would have made in my life. Um, even if it didn't make the living of my life as quality as I wanted it to be. So she ain't no chicken. She's a fucking hero in my book. So I appreciate that you appreciate that. Not, yeah. not, not many people have even read that one. So I, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, that one struck me. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I think I had a bit of a edible complex, you know, dealing with my mom. I uh, I wouldn't really enter a relationship with a woman unless she had lived a bit, you know, unless she had experienced at least something. Like when I was a kid, I, you know, I went to jail. i Partied too much. I did a lot of dumb things. And I would, I really wouldn't give the time of day to someone who was completely innocent because they just weren't at my level. They were almost foreign, you know, unless I was always You're lying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was only attracted to women who had, you know, lived a bit for their age and were adventurous. And, um, and, um, uh, I tried with, um, uh, a woman. After college, I tried to stick with her for three years, you know, trying to be supportive and being like, you know, because she was um, bipolar, you know, I, and because I felt I understood her the way I understood my mom, you know, I was, I tried to make it work and, um, you know, and yeah, I got a lot of material. You know, after it was all over, it took years to process. But um, I wrote this thing called Little Rooms about our experiences during the recession of um, trying to stay sane and, you know, off the street. And um, there's scenes in, um, you know, Suicide Watch and uh, hospitals and real intense things that, you know, never got published because it's so, it's, it's not, it's hard, it's not palatable for everybody. Right. And um, I'm, I'm hoping the next project that me and my wife want to put out is this thing called By My Own Hand, which are character sketches of people that I've known who have attempted suicide or, or have succeeded, and really just trying to show them as people instead of statistics or mm-hmm. as. It's the last taboo. I mean, it's the, the, there's still a stigma and everyone, like anything that's heavy, people will rationalize it and write it off and try to find a reason to explain it away. And I hope sometime next year to have this project out just to paint people, you know, as real human beings and without giving an explanation or some heavy, you know, clinical explanation or a philosophical thing, just as a human, you know, sketch of words and writing and experiences, you know, paint some of these people who are, you know, dear to me, you know, so that I'm looking forward to that. <laughs>
1: well, we, you know, I, I hear the chuckle when you say I'm looking forward to that, but I actually believe that very much because it's a very intriguing project just to hear you talk about it. And I, you know, I'm running through a list of people in my mind who, you know, I mean, I, I've always considered addiction a slow motion suicide once you're actually aware that that's the problem. Um, So, I mean, the number of people I know and the forms of, of giving up that I've seen are endless, but, um, It's a concept that as a person who has (laughs) brushed elbows with death on numerous occasions and lives in a constant um, wrestling match with it at this point, um, the idea of exercising that level of control is a foreign idea to me. Um, I understand and accept and value and is, you know, um, and supportive of what the individual does d- decides. Yeah. It's too. not a decision I can
0: make. I just can't, you know, and, um, All right, cool. So, yeah, um, by request, (laughs) I'll read uh, Rain Dance. And it goes like this Cool. Hear that? She turned towards the window. That's thunder. She pulled back the curtain. The sky is cracking. She looked at me. I must have been acting gloomy because I couldn't go play outside. Come on, let's go, let's go see. I started to tie my shoes. You don't need those, let's go. She took my hand and pushed past the screen door. Just in time, rain began to fall from the gray sky. Barefoot, we ran across the lawn. We ran into the hayfield. The rain was warm, lightning shot gold in the distance. She spread her arms and spun around. I did the same. Her wide smile was drenched, her long black hair was dripping. She laughed for joy. I jumped up and down and laughed too. She taught me summer rain was our friend and that how we felt had more to do with what was on the inside rather than what was happening in the world on the outside. She was up, she was down, but this is when I loved her best arms outstretched with the, ele- with the electricity branching out behind her. This was when I wasn't afraid of anything. I was six years old and she was my mother.
1: That's awesome. That is an awesome, and see, it fits right in with what, what we were talking about. Yeah. I'm a master at this, aren't I? You see how yes. I did that segue thing? that's a beautiful beautiful poem now i have to ask is that a true story yes i I assumed as much
0: (laughs) and people think that it's easy just to like write autobiographically and it's it's not it sometimes takes decades to be able to get past your own bullshit and take down the wall and just write something simple is is deceivingly hard sometimes to um yeah
1: well and when i try to go back in my in my head when i try to go back to early days uh, like my youth and being a kid and tap into those feelings it's it's very very i don't know if it's the older i get or the more my brain mushes or what but Um, those memories get more and more difficult to even access much less to be able to remember accurately and color the way they happened. You know, Um, there are certain things that I hang on to, like, you know, thinking that I could take on the world because I could put on a football helmet and swing in my swing set in the backyard and just let go and fly and know yeah. that because I had a football helmet on and nothing could happen, you know? And you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> that that kind of thing is hard to tap into at 58. Um, but damn, that shit would be fun, wouldn't it? They make hel- helmets a lot better too.
0: Yeah, yeah dude. I think that's, uh, again, why memories fade for a reason because I think a common trait with writers is that our memories are very good. And it can be um, maddening, you know, that you can, and that you're haunted by your memories, and and that's why, you know, you fall into trying to erase your memories. You know, it's like the Tom Waits song. You know, the to the things you can't remember, to the things you can't forget. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I found myself in a in a recently in a in a situation. I would say a stage where I'm finding out that the way I remember these things is not really as accurate as I'd like to think based on um, external reports from others who were there. (laughs) (laughs) And I write that off to say that they were, they've lost as much memory as I have as well. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's all
0: fiction. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) All right, so what else we got? And like another problem I have, my um, professor... Sure, sure.
1: No, no, go ahead. Well, let me read
0: one of my... Tell me about the professor. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, my professor James Berg, he he said... um, a lot of the details in my writing, he wouldn't believe unless he knew me, you know, like the the broken glass in the corner that I would throw bottles and just keep it there, you know, bullshit like that. He said that it's like stuff out of like a B movie. Right. And so it gets to the point where like if you, you know, is it believable? Even if it's true, sometimes it's not believable. Like if you lived... In the in a B movie, I mean that's the way you're gonna write. I mean, yeah, so I, that's another conundrum for me.
1: Yeah, my whole collection of experiences or stories, as they may end up, um, is just. I mean, I tell a story in, in mixed company, and people go, "No way!" You <laughs> yeah.
0: know,
1: I, I mean, it's in. I just the endless stories, you know, coming home and finding my living room to be a quarter inch deep in LP vinyl where my girlfriend got pissed off and decided she needed to play Frisbee with my 300 record albums. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah, nobody would do that. Oh, yes, they would. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my friend.
0: What you got, what else you got? Well, let me do uh, some new stuff. I think in um, 12 Chicago Cabbies, I think my sense of humor has come through better than other projects. So for contrast, why don't I read this one okay they um, I mean there's stories in here about drivers getting mugged drivers that um, you know have experienced racism, drivers that are racist themselves um, drivers that are Vietnam vets and, Someone stole one of their cabs and they hunted them down and they found it. Mm, Uh, Not good. Yeah, it's a lot of intense stuff. But let me read a funny one just to contrast the last one. This one's called Mushi. Mushi. Mushi was religious. He was a devout Muslim. Drinking alcohol was against his beliefs. And of course, I respected his beliefs. He was a good driver. He claimed that just the smell of alcohol made him sick. Unlucky for him, carting around drunks all day is a cab driver's bread and butter. He would call in and cry, oh, why is God punishing me? This lady, she was so full of the alcohol. She looked like she was gonna throw up in my cab. I told Mushi, you know, if they puke in the cab, we'll charge an extra 50 bucks on their credit card. We can do that. The puke fee is posted in the back seat. No, no, it's not worth it. I edged them on a little bit more. Some drivers rock back and forth and hit the gas around curves trying to get the drunks to pop. Easy (laughs) 50 bucks, pop, pop. No, never, I run a clean cab. As a dispatcher, I noticed our number one customer in Waukegan was a man named Mr. Finest. Like all regular customers, there wasn't anything regular about him. When he punched in his phone number into our order system, only three addresses came up, his house, the bar, and the dialysis center. The drivers reported that he wore a black Stetson and wore a long pimp feather as we drove him straight from the dialysis center to the bar every day. One one night, Mushi got the call and he called me at the dispatch office. No, not that guy. You know I don't take him. He smells like the alcohol. I cannot stand it. Mushi, you know I usually take you off the fair. I respect your beliefs, but there isn't anyone else out tonight. It's a short trip. Please just take Mr. Finus home. No, please, I do not do drunks, and he is the drunkest drunk. All right. I'll put it back on the board, but if he calls and complains, I'll be in a spot. All right, I'll go. I'll go for you. 20 minutes later, Mushi called in. I told you. I told you I don't pick him up. I told you. There's throw up everywhere. Oh, God, why? Did Mr. Finus puke? I asked him. No, he didn't. I did. I threw up. It's everywhere. I can't stand the smell of alcohol. I can't stand it i wondered if we could still charge mr finest the 50 bucks so that's it you know they're like little slices of life you know just like a cab ride you see someone they're there they're gone and we keep moving
1: i I think it's an excellent uh excellent concept for a book and and you know the several that i read i read that one too um you know, it's just like you said, there's just a wide range of it's descriptions of the people that do that, you know, and, you know, it'd be interesting to see that life now with Uber and all the bullshit that's going on with, with with their, their industry. Um, I mean, I live in a, a half-assed little beach town that you have a hard time even getting an Uber and even harder time getting a cab. So it's not even a real world for me, but, um, you know, I just wonder what that world is really like. Cause I, I, you know, what I hear, what did happen here was a a Uber driver got his, his brains blown out by a cabbie because he's, he took a fare. Yeah.
0: There's the airport,
1: you know? So, I mean, cab wars, baby.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a total road rage. That's that's terrible. And
1: yeah, I just really wonder how that you know, how that book would shake out today, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah, this, um, this is almost a historical document, even though a lot of these conversations I had as a dispatcher, you know, happened from like 2010 and a few years after that. You know, the cab industry is just increasingly disappeared because of rideshares. So it's yeah. Yeah, it's almost an antiquated historical document that I have here, you know.
1: Yeah, I think it's very true. And you know, the, the the TV and all the media and nostalgia around you know the cab business and the industry and you know the 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 hardworking folks that do that for a living. It's just another one of those things like the coal miners you know it's just going down the tubes you'll never see it again once it's
0: gone and you know it's it's uh, a lot of these people are immigrants and uh -hmm. you know it's a lot of people say you know we love immigrants but they'll turn around and say i don't like cab drivers you know (laughs) and it's like they're all so different you know i've had I love being in a cab in Chicago and they effortlessly go around traffic. I mean, it, it becomes part of their body and they can just zigzag. And I mean, it, it's a beautiful thing.
1: You know? Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, like, if you've ever watched the, the bike messengers, you know, those guys are freaking crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, but you know, cab drivers are the same kind of, um black swans you know in in the ballet that is transportation i guess
0: yeah um a lot of my ah, friends were beautiful bike- let me
1: write that down black swans in the world of transportation
0: oh that's cool <laughs> yeah a lot of my friends um were bike messengers um there's a story in um 12 chicago cab about my friend nikolai mm-hmm. and he's still doing that bike messaging and uh yeah, if, I don't know if you can see this, but I had a pretty bad bike accident during my <laughs> sporting days. And I ended up on the porch with my bike messenger friends and they were like helping me nurse my wounds because my, my face was just scar tissue right here. And um, again, my professor, James Bird took me to the emergency room <laughs> that night. And um, the next day I'm biking around and I hang out with my bike messenger friends you know, putting a PBR on my face for an ice pack, like an idiot. And um, they're like, that's nothing. I've lost teeth twice, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I've got some bike stories, too. I got hit by a car when I was in fifth grade. And yeah. I, slammed, I saw it coming. I slammed it. It was a coaster bike, you know. And, and I yeah. slammed the brakes on so hard it snapped the chain. And oh. the lady ran the stop sign and tapped my the back tire of my bike two days later, I went back and picked up my teeth, um, off the pavement. (laughs) I had a football jersey that, you know, a thick football jersey, um, that was just shredded. And my whole, my whole chest and all the way down to my belly was road rash, as was the left side of my face and no teeth and blood everywhere. It was horrible, but yeah. I, I've, I've experienced that. i have also the guy who decided it was a great idea at 30 miles an hour to reach out of the moving car um, to grab a flashing caution sawhorse, which was going to look really good in my bedroom. Yeah. I decided at 30 miles an hour, I needed to scoop that thing up with my arm.
0: <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs>
1: Uh, I won't even, it it would take too long to tell the story of how stupid that was. (laughs) Um, I'll tell you the end of it. For two weeks, I had to keep my arm above my heart because it throbbed so hard that I couldn't stand it. So everywhere I went, people thought I was waving at them. So everywhere I went for like two or three weeks, people would wave at me. me and my leather pants and fucking toward punk rock t-shirts. And I'm waving at everybody. It's like I'm a fucking, you know, beauty queen or
0: something. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, that's hilarious. I mean, there's some real punchlines at the end of sad stories sometimes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I went to the emergency room and I told the lady what happened and she says, you did what? (laughs) <laughs> sit down Mr. Vornell. we have some real emergencies we'll get to you as soon as we can <laughs> yeah
0: all um, right
1: what we got now Look, you want to do another another cabbie
0: um yeah uh any other one stick out at you or uh, um, any poems or
1: I did not mark one so I'll let you make the call
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's do some more sad stuff. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, So, this is an excerpt from my new book. Um, There's, for contrast, I like to jump from the city to the country. And, um, you know, I'm interested in that whole, you know, cultural divide in our country that seems to pit right and left and urban and country and, and living in both environments, you know, it's, I really do believe there's a lot more things in common than things that divide us. It's all just, you know, yep. the people in power want us divided you know, and they, the internet was supposed to be this encyclopedia of knowledge where at any moment you have all of human knowledge at the tip of your finger and what have we done, but created this great tornado of disinformation and you know things, but enough about that. This is a little excerpt from um, um, this story called uh, White Trash and Space Junk. And uh, of all the issues facing the world today, space junk, uh, falling from the heavens is not really on the radar anymore. So this goes like that. Um, One night when I was little, I woke up to a noise that I was outside. I was in the field looking up at the stars. A green light oozed from the aurora. It grew brighter until the hayfields seemed illuminated in a night vision lens. There was the faint smell of hair gel, metallic licks of 80s rock descended from the sky like some awful parody of a futuristic spacecraft. A distant voice said, send in the probe. I awoke sore and confused. Overnight I had downloaded an extensive knowledge of dirty jokes into my brain which kept my schoolyard chums and stitches for the rest of the semester. But it turns out my older brother was just using me as a sex object. That explained the smell of hair gel and 80s rock. (laughs) To write a passage for a hick, not getting abducted by aliens, but getting molested. They hadn't gotten around to teaching sex ed in school yet, so in a way I was ahead of the curve. After that, my brother and I didn't have much of a sibling rivalry I had won by default because I was the victim. I was the stooge. Here's your participation ribbon. From then on, I felt different than the other kids. I was different. Things were not so simple anymore. I was less trusting of the world. Now the teachers only spoke in half-truths. The other kids just repeated what they heard the adults say. There had to be something more. There had to be a way out. I had to become something more. The external environment would not shape me anymore. I had my filter on now. Only I was responsible for who I was. One way or another, I had to leave and make my own home. And that's that.
1: Yeah, that one's, that one's a little close to home, my brother. There's, um, there's a lot of reality there, but you know, what keeps hitting me and it has for years, um, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a trained counselor. I I do, I did addiction and what I know is, you know, I was in that business when abuse and rumors of abuse were everywhere and they focus predominantly on the female side of things, but even to this day, um, there's an organization called One in Six, I believe it is, that focuses on the male side of things, and uh, the abused males, and I think that that's a population that gets left out of this discussion an awful lot, And, and I think that anybody who knows me will hear me say on an ongoing basis that it's the labels that we come up with to excuse stuff that causes all the friction and all the problems. You know, this urban versus rural divide and red versus blue and all that kind of stuff. It's all this distraction stuff to keep us from having to talk about the real shit. And it's just become modus operandi for us to deal with it and so, I, you know, what I heard loudest in that piece was the male voice, and I think that's real important, and I appreciate that, quite, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It took, it take years to, like, write about stuff like that that's important. You know, I, as a, I think I was driven into art as a kind of distraction, my own kind of therapy, and drawing surreal and abstract things, you know, to go to another place. And I think Mm -hmm. when it became full circle and I was able to like write the truth, you know, um, it's much more powerful. I've written about that stuff in a very uh, deadpan way before. And I think I'm at the point now where I'm able to add a kind of, dark humor to it you know with the the alien spacecraft bs mm-hmm. and and fictionalize it just enough that it's palatable i think i'm glad of the, the point that i'm at where it's it's mine now and i can do whatever i want with it you know? <laughs> right yeah and i i think that
1: that's the important part is it, it is you know it is yours to do with what you want whether it's your experience or whether you dreamed it up in your own head or whether you saw it happen to somebody else and none of that is is of any importance whatsoever it's a yet another gift that you put on the page and you throw it out there like that dollar you give the bum and say okay go buy a beer you know whatever you take it and you do whatever you want to with it and in my case it might apply personally to my experience it might be something i heard about on 60 minutes it might be, you know, an organization that I ran across in a web, you know, ad somewhere. It, you know, it, who knows? It's but as a writer, it's none of my business. What matters is I got the balls to write it, and yeah. and 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 then process it to the point that it's palatable for everybody else to get it at
0: least. Yeah, yeah, and it's been it's been good. I think again, that's a good role of the writer is to make it okay. You know, like I, when I first started feeling comfortable talking about what happened to me, you know, I found just like you said, that it's not uncommon, you know, but what is uncommon is people getting uh, help for it or feeling that they'll be listened to or feeling that it's okay to process these things out in the open, which it is, I believe my motto is, you know, let in the light, let out the fire, you know, like there you're only as sick as your secrets, you know, and. Agreed hundred percent, no... man. I mean,
1: you know, it, it, it comes, it comes to value when you realize the impact that is actually made in a positive light. And here's what I mean by that. I'll take two experiences. One, I remember my father telling me at age eight that I needed to get my ass up out of bed. It's Sunday morning. We got to go to church because it's good for business. Meanwhile, he's preaching at me all week long about, you know, God and justice and the, you know, American way. All right. So there's that. Then there's Jack at age 13, 14, um, product, you know, left with Supermom who's reaching for a way to make things easier for her children. So she um, gets him associated with the church and their choir, where the loudest anti-homosexual hating, pro-family, anti-abortion choir leader, you know, is the one who's the, the predator okay yeah and you wonder why i might have certain views on religion today you don't know any of that all you know is i just am agnostic and i believe there's power out there and i gotta go access it and that power is truth. you know so i have to find those places and the internet ain't it. (laughs) that ain't where it lives you know so
0: i I, I just think it's
1: it's ballsy as fuck to put it out there like that i appreciate it man
0: thank you yeah, predators are attracted to, because they're used to wearing masks, and the, the most uh, the most powerful masks are the ones that you know are preaching this kind of goodness, and that's unfortunate, you know. Yeah, and often hide in the church, unfortunately. Yeah, and yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I happen to be agnostic myself. I I love um, thinking about as humans that we only know so much, and there might be a whole grand universe out there, but I'm also rational enough to know that, you know, we only know what we know, and there's a lot of things that can't be proven and they can't be disproven, you know? And as creative people, we go to these edge zones and we try to bring back evidence of, you know, what seems mystical now might be very real hundred years from now, you know? And it's It's fascinating stuff. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, my I mean, what I'm finding out, too, is that I've ignored, you know, aspects of my persona for many, many years based on the intellectualism that lives there. You know, and that comes from me figuring shit out and and coming up with a plan B and what's the next survival tool that I'm going to need. So I'm always in my head. And what that's done is it's it's cut me off from my instincts sometimes where my gut says, Jack, you know, better than that but I do it anyway because in my head I've justified it, you know? So, uh, you know, I'm trying to draw that balance to where I can get the intellectualism out of it enough that I could start to appreciate the stuff that I missed along the way, you know, because I was too busy trying to figure it out instead of live it.
0: (laughs) You know, how does that working in addiction for so long? I know that the higher power aspect of it is very important. And as, you know, as an agnostic, like, how does that fall into it? Because it's, well, you know,
1: it, it, it's all, I mean, from my perspective, and what I was taught, you know, and, and I'm pretty much 12 step oriented, if that's, you know, means anything. Um, but the idea is this, I ain't got no power. There's a power out there, there's a method to get that power. And if I follow that process, these particular results will be guaranteed. One of those is that I likely won't drink or use dope again. Okay. But what is more than likely to happen is I will realize that I just got a big hole in my soul I'm trying to fill, and that alcohol worked for a while or sex worked for a while and it don't work no more. And because it doesn't work anymore, I've been flailing around with intellectualism and and book smarts and willpower and this, that or the other thing to come fear, you know, that things are never going to change or I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. All of that, you know, I come to the point where the bottom line is I ain't got no power to do these things that I want to do. I'm either happy, joyous, and free, or I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And if I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, I'm going to need to fill that hole with something. And if I need to fill it with something, then I need to find it the power that I fill it with so that I'm able to differentiate the true from the false. It ain't about what is that power. Yeah. The power is the knowledge that I am powerless, mm-hmm. and I ain't got no answers. And But if I can get to this point, that part of it will be okay. And I've got a design um, that's, that proves as a method that works in any situation I use it in. And, and so that's, that's the answer. What happens in my case and kind of where I sit right now is there's a limit to that. Because it, even it's all based on a theory and a practice in a certain specific set of steps, all based in your brain to provide a soul cure. I need to figure out how to go get the soul cure directly, you know, and that's power and the knowledge to differentiate the truth from the false. And it might be as simple as, Jack, you know the truth, you cannot have that one beer and get away with it, you know? Or it could be as grand as, you know, you're lying to yourself. You're not presenting this person that you are presenting to the world is not the person that you really are. You know, you're not being honest here. You're not being dishonest. whatever. And my problem is I'm brutally honest. I'll tell you how I feel and without any concern because I care about you. And I don't want you walking around with a booger hanging out of your nose or your your fly unzipped, you know, because I care about you. Yeah. And that but I don't always deliver that message well. <laughs> and and, yeah. and and I don't use metaphor. <laughs> so you know, I, I lose that makes friends a lot of sense. And, and I lose friends and alienate people. That's my next book. you you'll see it on <laughs> Amazon one day. They... Yeah, that makes so, sense. I don't know. I hope that answers, but it's a powerless versus power is the answer. It's not a God versus no God.
0: Yeah. It's, it's some for, truth. It's forget different what different.
1: you think you know and go and accept this as the problem instead. You know. Right.
0: It's it's any truth. It doesn't have to be the ultimate truth. Right. Yeah. Right. That
1: and and makes... where does it come from? Does it come from the universe or does it come from, you know, some theory or some some in your head? because my head will lie to me, man. I, You know, I fucking bullshit myself all the time and I'm really good at it,
0: you know? Yeah, that's important. I mean, a lot of people out there, especially these days, it seems, think that their opinions are facts. And you gotta like, if you're gonna be a healthy, skeptical person, you know, you gotta know that you might lie to yourself sometimes too, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that I'm at risk to be lied to as well, because I am honest. You know, and I, I get taken advantage of all the time, you know, and, and the thing is, I'm a forgiving person, you know, and I don't I mean, I'll I'll have my outburst, but then it's done, you know, and I'm, I'm over it, you know, yeah. even even people in the world have a hard time accepting that they, they don't even get the fact that like my first wife has she doesn't understand the concept that I made a vow to her. And that even though we've been divorced now 20 years because she gave up and I didn't, I still honor those vows. You know, I still, you know, have some lingering hope, you know, because that was a serious commitment. And I take my commitment seriously. I don't make them if I don't mean them. And so that part of it's still alive for me. I would forgive her to the ends of the earth to my own death, you know obviously, because I paralyzed myself for many years with my perception of what happened there. And, and, you know, I wasn't dealing with shock and awe and betrayal. I was dealing with grief. (laughs) You know, that's different. You know, I was paralyzed, you know, and calling it hope, (laughs) you know, she's coming home. I know she's coming home. Yeah, no, she's not, dude. She's been gone fifteen years, and you've been married and divorced already since then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She ain't coming home, (laughs) dude. (laughs) Oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Words are powerful.
1: Just had to fucking ask, didn't you? Yeah. All right, give I, us some more. Uh, give us, give us two more poems. We got to call it quits, bro. All
0: right, cool. Let's do more, more poetry stuff here. Um, this, Grapes, um, Grapes
1: of Wrath, and my dog both kind of struck me too. My dog was fucking awesome.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I got that here somewhere. Um, sure. So yeah, here's that, cool. This first one is called Sugar Skull. Cool. Um, I wrote this in the end of February, 2020. I was just walking down to the corner and I came back and wrote this and I don't know, it was just something in the air at that point. I don't know what it was. Los Angeles is a strange place so anyway are you in in la proper are you in la proper yeah i'm in yeah i'm in hollywood i'm like normandy and sunset
1: cool cool so you're are Um, you all my punk
0: hostage friends yeah i've I've seen them on online yeah oh you haven't
1: you haven't been to the events and stuff you definitely should and rich ferguson is the shit man um, you talk about live poetry. He's awesome. So anyway, that's my two cents. Go for it.
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, I'll check them out. I'll definitely check them out. A lot of the open mics I've tried in Los Angeles have been more like, you know, self-help groups than, <laughs> you know, than, uh, you know, constructive. Um, uh, kind of uh, all, reading. All the, the tropes
1: <laughs> come up as a result of trying to write this poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything Punk and, Hostage uh, Press um, or or affiliated with Beyond Baroque, S.A. Griffin, R- Richard Modiano, Iris Barry, any of those Punk Hostage Press people, follow them around, dude.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah I do follow them. I,
1: I gotta... I'm envious of the fact you're right there where they all are. Oh, cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely engage more with them. I, I follow them, but yeah, I, I should.
1: Yeah, they're uh, all great people, publishers, um, hi- historical references out the ass as far back as even pre-Bukowski. So. Yeah.
0: Well, let's uh, read this one. It's called Sugar Skull. Dark avenues like red tunnels telescope back into her inner eye. Streetlights bend in the steam of frying bat meat. Motel shadows full of eyes suspend, hidden deals in cultural force fields. Bugs pour from the cracks in the mirror that line her face with age. She was sure she could lead the homeless army over the wall of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery to dig up the Pharaoh and use his skull like a radio to free the internet slaves. It was snowing dope in the desert, all fangs numb with angel feathers. She sneezed and blew her cover so the cameras descended on her and x-rayed her soul until she didn't believe she ever had one. She thought if she could reincarnate into her enemy and then commit suicide, she could loop time back to before the world was poisoned like a well. Smoking looms of memories flashed like lightning in the fog and burned her silhouette across the back wall of the Circle K. After her paranoid poems were rejected for channeling the dead, she intoned them like stand-up comedy to her doctors who decided to laugh rather than stroke their beards and declared her cured and shaved their goats and bottled her tears and sold self-help books based on the social media version of herself with a close up of her carbon footprint on the book jacket. Pungent flowers will grow from the decay of her good intentions, blocked orgasms, confabulated glory days, menstrual sunsets, lying pen parent expectations, self inflicted lobotomies, fever halos, conspiracies with the moon, apocalyptic codes, bonfires with the damned, the eulogy she wrote herself her caramelized brain, garbage islands, melting mushrooms, elephants in the room, dental dams, teddy bears, street corner prophets, endless lists of regurgitated objectivity, and personal madness giggling like musical rubber numbers under the shade of time. Will we ever sleep again? Will we ever dream in a new language? Will we be able to change the world but preserve our precious little melancholy mythology? Or can peace only arrive through desolation? Can we through trial and error, checks and balances be crowned with utopia, teetering on the peak of this round of recorded history? Torn by time, skinless, stretched on the rack of the wheeling sun in slow motion, teeth shattering in TV static it or God whispers. Want to do my dog?
1: Yeah, man, that, um, I hadn't read that one. That's a strong poem. And it, it, I'm going to go, I'll definitely have to go back and study it a little bit more, but um, you know what strikes me is it feels like you probably spent a month or two on every single line. (laughs) I mean, it's like each one just, it's its own story stacked on top of the next story, on top of the next story. I mean, it's it's like individual pieces of a much, much grander picture. And it kind of felt that way to, as you read it, you know, building blocks.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the imagery may have been things that I built up and used and reused in my own kind of mythology. Um, It's, I wouldn't, I don't want to say that it's easy to write. I think it takes years before you can write easily. Um, I think it did come out very fast. I think, um, I don't want to get superstitious because I just, I'm just not that kind of person in my conscious life, but there is an aspect of channeling that happens when you get out of your own way and let the subconscious speak around your own ego and I don't always write that way but this one was definitely like that where it felt downloaded in the air the pandemic was about to happen and just it just came out and um so like anything that comes out like that you know you don't feel completely responsible for it um it's it's um so anybody who you know doesn't like it or really likes it you're just kind of it is what it is that's the way it came man (laughs) you know i i I take responsibility yeah i mean i
1: definitely relate and understand that because like i was talking about you know having pieces that i've been working on for 10 years and they all started with that very stream of consciousness like like vomiting on the page And, you know, what needed to change at that point is the actual mechanics and the polish, you know, the story was told and even most of the visuals attached, you know, and it was just a matter of polish. And that's kind of the way that piece felt like the end result of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's um, definitely some of my own philosophy in there. and But a lot of the things are just in the air. And if you're a sensitive person, you know, there's a lot of like, homeless people in Los Angeles. And there's a lot of um, this just dark mix of like tropical paradise mixed with this kind of, you know, human suffering, all like ugly and beauty all on top of each other and rapidly changing, you know forms and so yeah it just I, I get it, man. yeah
1: i get it i mean i live yeah. in dustin florida and it's like home of the red and then you've got the strange mix of of much more liberal thinkers and traffic in and out all the time from other places in the country most of which are still all pretty red but it's, yeah i i for many other than just health reasons often don't feel real inclined to leave this room <laughs> yeah. except to maybe go yeah. to the beach, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, it's uh I,
1: can you see me in my punk hostage um, t-shirt and my um, camouflage kilt going to the A and P, you know, give me some groceries and, <laughs> yeah. and fight about whether I should be wearing a mask or not.
0: <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah i mean it's un- unfortunate like that as sensitive people like i could i f- feel like i could feel the pandemic coming and like the um mm-hmm. and all of the suffering that's going on since you know we're all very sensitive to it on the other hand i'm very lucky that as a writer i have a high tolerance for being reclusive and right. just focusing my work, and so I am very lucky that personally I've, you know, l- nobody in my family has died from it. I've people through work have have uh, I've seen people die, um, but yeah, as a writer, like I am definitely a pandemic soldier. Being social is not a requirement of mine. It's like William Burroughs said, um, you know, a requirement for a writer, if you're not able to sit alone in a room for months, years, then you should find another trade. So I'm lucky in that aspect.
1: Well, and, and, you know, I I'm of the opinion that it's a fortunate thing that technology has expanded and that we've been forced to have to adapt to it to some degree. I mean, we're doing this today in a format that two years ago we probably wouldn't have um yeah you know and as somebody who worked in the internet industry for a long long time i i also had my vision of what was going to happen in the future and this is it and one of the big missing pieces from literature and poetry and and my interest there has always been that for the people i like you know in small press and 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 engaged um living meaning they're actually out there living, poets, um, you know, the, the missing piece has been exposure. I mean, and I, you know, I was talking with John Dorsey, this whole conversation kind of started, you know, there's a, there's a girl somewhere named Betty Sue in Birmingham, Alabama, who, if she was to read a certain word or a certain sentence or a certain phrase in a book that you wrote, that would change her life. She deserves to know that, you know, yeah. and you write because you want to do that, you know, um, I would assume, um, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, know it was, uh, so John we, we've Belichita. limited ourselves because what's happened is, okay, I've got all my friends that I know on Facebook or wherever. And if I put out a chat book, all my certain friends are going to buy my book. And then there's the other certain friends I'm going to send a book. And then that's it. Done. Well, Betty Sue in Birmingham still don't know that book exists. You yeah. Know, that's not fair to her. And 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 as a promoter of the word, I say evangelist more often than not. You know, it's my responsibility to find a way to get that word out there. And, and uh, you know, I don't see any reason in the world when even if we are – all going back to, you know, on um, uh, uh, you know, offline in person events. You anybody can set a laptop up and make that event two ways. Now, you you not only do you have the audience in the in the club or wherever you are, you've also got an infinite audience out here that's enjoying it as well. Yeah, you know, why would you not do that? It just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a, a very positive global village and democratization of, of knowledge and art and everything with the internet. It's it's great. And yeah, I it's inspiring too. I mean, I'm glad that we're doing this. I mean, it's great. And funny thing is, John Dorsey is the only person I hung out with in person <laughs> all summer. <laughs> and I wouldn't have known him unless it wasn't for the internet. But you know. Well, and and Look, I mean, you want to hang
1: out with somebody who knows what they're talking about. You can't do much better than that. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, yeah, you want to know how, if you want to know how to publish a book, I mean, he, he's he's the guy to talk to, you know, Um he I mean, you know, his deal, man. I don't need to sell anybody on John Dorsey, you know. Um Yeah. You know, John Dorsey's big secret is limited editions.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he'll My uh, twelve Chicago um, copies is is doing the same business model. Uh, the publisher, uh, Newington Blue Press, he knows something about supply and demand. You know, mm-hmm. there there is something to be said for um, you know we're doing a hundred copies. You know, if you don't get one of the hundred copies, you know, then better look for it on eBay because it makes it a a. a an, an, art, an art object you know it's there's mm-hmm. only so many and it makes it collectible collectible you know mm-hmm. even if you're just starting out
1: yeah well and you, you you pump out a lot more books that way too in the end i mean as far as titles I'm, yeah I, I can't even keep up with you know what john has coming out next week with ryberg <laughs> or whoever you know yeah um in, in fact i'm that's uh, yeah so but the, the whole point is that even somebody who's been around as long as he has, has accepted and adapted that technology. And, and we all freaking like seeing each other anyway. So, yeah. you know, if we're not able to go and hang out and, and 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 some of us wouldn't even be able to do that, even if we wanted um, I mean, you know, once mm upon a time I had plans of a grand rail trip, you know, from here to LA. You know, it just ain't going to happen. You know, just my, I can't do what I used to do yet. You know, yeah. Um, So you got goals, baby. You know,
0: (laughs) yeah. I hope the tour once this is all over and really press the flesh, there's nothing like it, you know.
1: Well, you you can just leave Destin, Florida off the mix. There's nothing here. <laughs> um, unless you want to swing through and pick me up, I'll take you to Atlanta. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's cool. Why don't I read uh, my dog? You got Great. time? Sure. Yeah, we'll do that, and then we'll close it out. All right. Cool, man. My dog, this got published in India, which is awesome. It's another miracle of the internet, you know, and the, that the internet, yeah, it can span the whole world and and there's still publishing laws, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, this can only be read on the page in India. That's, that's pretty wild. So um, anyway, my dog, sometimes when my wife is out of town, I sit at home and look at the other side of the couch at her dog, who is now my dog. And I think, how did I end up with this fluffy little creature? The little dog lets me know when she needs food. She pulls me around the neighborhood. I pick up her droppings like a stooge. She barks at the other dogs, but makes friends with the humans. I tend to do the opposite. Before I met my wife, I was so drunk all the time, I couldn't keep a pet. In AA, they advised that before you try a relationship with a person, to try a pet. Or in bad cases, try a house plant and see if you water it. I did one better. I bought a plastic plant that didn't need water. It had solar panels and sat in my window and waved when the sun hit it. But I got got drunk, I fell down and I broke the damn thing. Then my wife picked me up. She taught me how to love again. She had this little dog and we treated it like a baby. I never had a dog, even as a boy in Wisconsin. I never, I never loved an animal so much. Soon I began to love myself again. Before she rescued me, my wife rescued the little dog from the pound. That dog used to roam the streets in a gang It ate garbage. It had other owners but ran away. It shivered in the thunderstorms and fought with other dogs. So now the dog doesn't trust her own kind and barks when she sees another dog. Just as I know people are dogs, it's hard to trust. The dog and I are friends. The dog and I are the same. We're both lucky to be adopted by my wife. We're both tramps, mutts, bums. We both love my wife. We both make good pets. As long as we're fed. That's that.
1: Yeah, that's that one. Um, That one really struck me. And, and, you know, it's a clever craft to uh, make it about a dog when it's not really about a dog. But nice, nice try, (laughs) dude. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what we need is more love poems about beautiful wives who actually take care of us and rescue us when we need rescuing. So it's a pleasure to see and hear
0: that. Yeah. Because they are going to rule the world, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, My wife, Andrea, she's a real special person. Um, You know, like, she, uh, we met at a punk rock bar in Chicago called Exit. Um, we would do readings at Weeds, which was a real hardcore reading in Chicago. And she even, um, uh, came up with the idea of doing an all Burkowski night for at Weeds, which went over real good. We all read her favorite Burkowski poems. And she's, um, she plans on making a press called Lapis Folly Press, we should get rolling next year. And be able to help some of um, our other friends, you know, get their voices heard and yeah.
1: Well, that's awesome, man. And as you uh, hopefully know by now, um, any progress in those um, areas, um, the door is always open. Um, We're more than happy to help support you guys in in your efforts. And, you know, as the uh, book becomes available um, we'll do some additional promotions and PR on this, and as well, tell us a little bit more about the whole release process for your couple of books you got
0: coming out. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I will. And before we go, yeah, let me uh, correct my name, and don't feel bad. It's, <laughs> it's uh, the last name's Hein, like Heinrich Heine, the, the lyric poet from the 1800s. Um, I would have said it came game. wrong, too. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, funny thing, like, uh, yeah, I believe in Germany it's pronounced uh, Heine. Uh, but in America, we don't have time for all that sh- extra syllable stuff. It's just Heine. Heine. And, uh, gotcha. Yeah. And well, I'll, I'll try
1: to do better next time. But, yeah, that's how we learn, right?
0: Yeah. We'll yeah, have to uh,
1: unzip their fly and tell us, you know, that the name is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: I'll unzip my and fly. Most
1: everybody else out there have permission to let me know if I've if I've gone astray at any Oh, any Everyone occasion. does
0: that. Everyone does it. I'll unzip my fly and show you my real Heine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right, brother. I'm gonna say goodbye to everybody else. You sit tight. Ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate you being a, a, a party to all this madness. We've had a great afternoon. Hope you have as well. Editing will be happening while you sleep and will be live and um, pre- premiered on uh, all your podcasts and YouTube in the next couple of days or so. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Come support us, socialyetdistance.com. Thanks.